Hi everyone, welcome back to Hitchcock University where you learn filmmaking from the masters. My name is Taylor Bickle. Last class session we talked about Billy Wilder's first Hollywood uh, film, his directorial debut in Hollywood anyway. Uh, that was The Major and the Minor. And this class session we're going to talk about um, probably one of the films in his career that really made him. I mean, this film received several... Oscar nominations, including Best Director, Best Screenplay, and uh, and Best Picture, though it didn't win any of them. And that film is Double Indemnity. If you're not familiar with Double Indemnity, it's, it's one of the first films recognized to fall under the genre that was later called, that was later called Film Noir. And it's the story of an insurance salesman who gets wrapped up in a murder plot when a young trophy wife wants to knock off her husband. Now, this is adapted from a book by James M. Cain, um, that comes out of a tradition that is called hard-boiled fiction. Um, and when they receive... Uh, the the issue is these, these hard-boiled fiction novels uh, were really popular, and a lot of people wanted to adapt them into films, but the production code, the Hayes Code, really prevented a lot of people from figuring out how to do that. But when Double Indemnity came across... Billy Wilder's path and he really wanted to do it and not only did he really want to do it but he he gave it immediately to his collaborator Charles Brackett and Brackett wanted nothing to do with it he just he thought it was too sordid too seedy it, it, it just wasn't what he was interested in so he, so Billy started looking for a collaborator Billy Billy Wilder really truly believed in the power of collaboration and it's something that we're going to harp on quite a bit and I'm going to try to take different approaches to it um, than we have in the past, um, because because I think Billy Wilder has some really fascinating things to say on it that I never really thought about before, and that I don't think any other filmmaker has brought to our attention. Um, but we'll get to that in a second. Um, so Charles Brackett steps out, and Billy Wilder starts trying to think, who else could I get to sit down and collaborate with me on the script? And he first thinks, well, why don't I get the guy who wrote the book in the first place? Why don't I bring in James Kane? The studio steps in and says, well, what about this other guy, this other fiction, this other crime writer by the name of Raymond Chandler? And they give Billy the, 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 the book The Big Sleep, which was later adapted into another one of the early film noir um, pictures. And Billy says, oh, this is going to be great. You know, this, this guy's a great writer. This is going to be phenomenal. The problem was what he didn't anticipate was how different he and Raymond Chandler really were. And he also didn't realize, I don't think, that Chandler had never written a screenplay before. He was a novelist. And I don't want to trash on Raymond Chandler, but this is not the only time that uh, Raymond Chandler and a great filmmaker weren't able to work together because Raymond Chandler was a novelist. Um, it, it comes up quite a bit um, in, in my Hitchcock research that when Raymond Chandler and Alfred Hitchcock tried to work together on Strangers on a Train, it just didn't work. There's a similar issue here. The, their personalities didn't clash, or the, their personalities clashed, their writing process clashed, the, just everything about Chandler and Wilder were so polar opposite that they, they had a really tough time working together. But Billy, Billy specifically had issues with the way Chandler would go about the, the actual act of writing, the actual what would end up on the pages. He says um, in the documentary Wilder Speaks, he says he, Raymond Chandler, didn't know the first thing about writing scripts. He only wrote camera movements. He also says that the voiceover was something that Chandler and, and Billy fought over frequently, not whether or not they should have it, 
but how to pull it off. Chandler tended to want to give Walter Neff, the Fred McMurray character, the hero of the story, something just shy of omniscience, you know, um, which makes sense for a novelist. Novelists tend to write from this kind of omniscient point of view. But Billy wanted, but Billy felt that they really had to stay absolutely true to this character that they had created in Walter Neff. And so the voiceover needed to come from this character they had created, which is what you would expect from a film. Um, also, in Billy Wilder Speaks, he goes on to say that they collaborated on the dialogue, but that Raymond Chandler defined the atmosphere, which I think is really important. Um, this quote here... This quote here comes from his biography, Nobody's Perfect, where he says, Chandler was full of talent, but we were not made for each other. With a collaborator, it's like a marriage, you know? Even though you may not get along, you can produce something. I was very happy with the end result of Double Indemnity, which I think is very gracious of Billy Wilder to say. The fact of the matter is they didn't get along. Um, but Wilder also recognizes that that even though you don't get along, you can still create something. And this is something we're going to talk about at length much later um, about how Billy Wilder viewed collaboration. Um, the fascinating thing, though, is that even though the collaboration started off poor with him and Chandler, um, Billy had found another collaborator in the cinematographer John F. Seitz. He worked with him on a film that we didn't talk about called Five Grapes to Cairo, and Billy rehired him for this film. It's hard talking about film noir sometimes because nobody set out to make a film noir. Noir was a genre that was defined later in France as these these old films from the 40s and 50s from Hollywood were finally making their way to France and this this rise of cinephilia, or cinephilia and film criticism in France was on the rise. They, a number of film critics in France noticed that there were these kind of common themes that were coming together from these films, and they define these films as film noir, but no one set out to do it. But one of the things that has become recognized of film noir, specifically from the 40s, is this heavy style, heavy black and white, high contrast you know, dark, black, very German Expressionist-style films. And it was something that, even though I don't think Billy Wilder set out necessarily to make something so Expressionistic, he did set out with with an image in his mind, and he needed a cinematographer who could pull that off. So let me read from you um, an excerpt from, from Conversations with Billy Wilder. Uh, the Cameron Crowe interview, where he says, I had to find a house that is typical for a guy like the husband of Stanwyck, Barbara Stanwyck playing, um, again, a term that was later defined as the femme fatale. Um, so I had to, find, uh, had to find a house that is typical for a guy like the husband of Stanwyck. Two stories I wanted. Two stories I wanted. Two stories in the house. Because I wanted to photograph her coming down the steps with the anklet. The art director lived in a house like this, and what I wanted what I was trying for with my cameraman, John Seitz, was a very specific thing. I told him that whenever I come into a house like this, whenever I opened the door and the sun was coming in, there was always dust in the air because they never dusted it. And I asked him, could you get that effect? And he could. He says later, we had to be realistic. We had to believe the situation in the characters or all was lost. I insisted on black and white, of course. And in making operettas, I'd learned that a that sometimes one technical shot can destroy a picture. You could say that Double Indemnity was based on the principle of M. 
the very good picture starring Peter Lorre. That's a German expressionist film. I had a feeling, something in my head, M was on my mind. I tried for a very realistic picture. A few little tricks, but nothing very tricky. M was the look of the picture. It was a picture that looked like a newsreel. You never realized it was staged, but like a newsreel, you could look to grab a moment of truth and exploit it. Billy clearly knew what he wanted this picture to look and to feel like, and he needed a cinematographer like John Seitz to collaborate with him to bring that to life. Let me go back here for a second. He says, he says, I told him, John Seitz, whenever I come into a house like this, whenever I open the door and the sun was coming in, there was always dust in the air because they never dusted it. I asked him, could you get that effect? And he could. We now refer to that as atmosphere, and you just do it with a fog machine, but that wasn't, that wasn't available at the time, and I'm not sure anybody had really developed that kind of photography yet. So Billy Wilder says, again in conversations with Billy Wilder, he says, John Seitz took some magnesium and he, and he kind of made it into dust, and then he blew it up there, and that's when we were shooting before it settled. So we got that effect. John Seitz came up with a way to get what Billy Wilder wanted. Billy Wilder would have never thought to throw magnesium dust in the air, but John Seitz knew that if he had something in the air, some kind of atmosphere, um, in this case something silvery that would reflect very well on the black and white film stocks of the time, he could create that effect. So about uh, about collaborating not just with a writer, but with someone who who's, their specific craft is helping you bring your vision to life. Billy says this in conversations with Billy Wilder. He says, the director is just another guy that helps with the making of the picture, but many people make the movie. And this is one of the issues that, that I'm starting to take with with some of the film criticism, with, with some of the ways that we talk about films. And Billy Wilder steps, steps in and says it right out. And um, there's another, uh, there's, there's a, a Hollywood writer who unfortunately has passed now by the name of Bill, uh, William Goldman. Bill Goldman wrote a number of books about writing in Hollywood that if you're interested in screenwriter, you need to go get. And quite honestly, if I ever reach a point where I decide that I'm going to do um, a season on a writer, I think Bill Goldman will be right at the top of the list. But um, this idea that somehow that the director is in charge of absolutely everything and it's the director that that makes the movie and, and it's the director that's responsible for a film's greatness, I think is just, it's just not true. Um, very, very few directors have the technical skill to pull off a movie. I mean, we spent a lot of time last semester talking about um, about Robert Rodriguez and Rodriguez is a genius film director and he's very technical and I think there's a lot of things that we can learn from him on that scale, but there's very few filmmakers that are that way, that that are so hands-on at every part of the process most of us need someone to come to come in and help and the director's job is is to set the vision but it's other people's job that have to come in and help make that vision true help make that vision a reality and and so in that sense billy wilder says the director is just another guy that helps with the making of the picture but many people make the movie he then goes on to say that fritz lane told me early in my career now fritz lane um, was a German expressionist filmmaker. Um, I believe he's the one who made M. I frequently get Lane and F.W. Murnau mixed up. Let me look that up real quick. Yes, yes, Fritz Lane was the one that made M. So Fritz Lane, the one that he actually ended up kind of in some ways 
uh, modeling double indemnity after one of his films. Fritz Lane told me early in my career, look for good shooters. They are some special ones. There are some... There are there are some sorry, Fritz Lane told me early in my career look for good shooters. There are some special ones. He was right, and I was very lucky. They were good, very fun. They did what was asked. Sometimes they wanted to do a little move and held back, and that's the importance. This is this is so fascinating. He he, he then goes on to say in um, he then says in in the book Billy Wilder interviews in the interview the message in Billy Wilder's fortune cookie. Well, nobody's perfect. Long title. He says, that's what it is to make a film, a collaboration with an actor and a director, between a director and a cinematographer, between a director and a set designer. What will the atmosphere be? What color will we use? Where will the living room be in relation to the bedroom? How am I going to use this to its advantage? What will allow the best camera movement? You can't separate the functions. All must be integrated. If not, you'll have the terrible botched work that you see on television. It's not like a play where you have eight weeks of rehearsal. In filmmaking, everything must be minutely prepared because what you do each day is more or less what you're going to keep. And I think that's so important for us to remember that every role on set is massively important to what we do. It is so important for us to work closely with these people and understand what they bring to the table and and work alongside them and not just tell them what we want and then hope that they're going to to do it. You know, you need to work in step with each other. He says you can't separate the functions, all must be integrated. And I think that's so important for us to remember. Now, there's one last thing here that that I think we need to talk about because it is so key to this film and and it is so both in step and out of step with Billy Wilder. We haven't gotten really in, as in-depth as I'm hoping we will, but Billy Wilder was incredibly efficient. You know, we've talked about how he wanted to stick to the script, stick to the plan that you already set, um, and how he intentionally only shot things um, in a way that that they could be put together the way he wanted to. Well, there's an interesting thing that happened with this film. Um, so... Let me lay out a couple of things. So you have Fred McMurray, who's the hero of the film, who gets wrapped up in the murder plot. And then you have um, Edwin G. Robinson, who is his boss at the insurance company. Well, not really his boss, but a, a co-worker at the insurance company. And they they have a, a strong bond, a real friendship. And so there was a different ending to this movie than what we see now. He describes it like this in, um, in conversations with Billy Wilder. He says, I performed a major surgery on the, on the end of double indemnity. I had an ending about 20 minutes long where Mr. McMurray was executed in the, in the gas chamber. And outside is Eddie Robinson watching. Their characters are two great friends and there is something going on between them. An exchange, a bond that doesn't need words. Then after I built that whole thing, I saw it was unnecessary. I found a scene. The other scene would have been very anti. He's talking about the original ending. Would have been very anticlimactic. We knew that he was guilty because he confessed. The ending between the two men, almost a love scene, was the best. He later says, "I did not need it. the The original ending that they shot. I knew it. I knew it as I was filming the next to last scene, which is the scene the movie ends on. Now, the story was between the two guys. I knew it, even though I had already filmed the gas chamber scene." 
It was moving, but the other scene, the previous scene, was moving in itself. What the hell do we need to see him die for, right? So we just took that took out that scene in the gas chamber. It was a good scene, but we'd said it. Again, he says we were guilty of duplicating the thing. Okay, let me unpack this and make sure that you guys have the right context. So there's a scene where, where our hero goes to the gas chamber because he's been caught. The way the script's originally written, the scene just before that, which is now the ending of the movie, is where Fred McMurray, our hero, and Edward G. Robinson, his friend, see each other, and he basically confesses to, to Eddie Robinson what he did. And there's this beautiful scene where they're, where they're just there together in that moment. They had shot the gas chamber scene, and then they shot that scene. And as they're shooting it, Billy realizes, oh, no, I don't need that gas chamber scene. This is where the movie ends. If I put the gas chamber scene in, I'm just repeating what I has already said here. This is the ending of the movie. I think that really speaks to Billy's resolve as a storyteller, to his efficiency as a storyteller, to, to the fact that he was willing to cut out that, that this man who was so used to we use everything we cut or, or, or we use everything we shoot, said, I just shot almost a whole reel that we don't need for the movie. And I'm going to have to cut it. There's, there's, there's real power in what is referred to in this business as killing your babies. The things that you're attached to, the things that you think work, the things that you may have put a lot of energy and effort to into are sometimes not what is right for the story. And sometimes they need to go. And the fact that he was willing to scrap something that was already in the can that they had spent a lot of money on and a lot of time on, he just said, we don't need it. We don't need it. We, you know, they, <laughs> they very meticulously recreated the actual gas chamber at San Quentin. You know, a lot of, lot of effort went into doing that. You know, they looked into the process and tried to get it all right. And in the end, they didn't need it. And Billy knew that they didn't need it. And it, it is so far gone that um, you actually cannot find the footage anymore. I don't know what he did to it or what Paramount did to it, but it is gone. There is no record that anyone can find of that scene. So that's double indemnity. Let me, let me give you one more thing here. There was a film that David O. Selznick was putting out. David O. David o. Selznick was the, was the producer of Gone with the Wind. And he was advertising his big film of that year called Since You Went Away. And they, they were marketing it like this. These big, you know, ads in, in the paper and in the trades saying, the four most important words in Hollywood since Gone with the Wind. That was what Since You Went Away was supposed to be. Billy thought that was ridiculous and completely pompous, so he pulled out some ads himself um, for his film and said, Double Indemnity, the two most important words since Broken Blossoms, um, which Broken Blossoms was a movie that was, I mean, Gone with the Wind was two or three years old at this point. Broken Blossoms was a silent film that D.W. Griffith had put out, you know, this big masterpiece of, of, of Griffith's. And the funny thing is, when Hitchcock went and saw Double Indemnity, he took out an ad saying, since Double Indemnity, the two most important words in Hollywood are Billy Wilder. 
That's how much this film put Billy on the map. And with that, we're going to go into two more of his most classic films, uh, The Lost Weekend, Sunset Boulevard. And then after that, we're going to talk about Ace in the Hole. But that is all we have for this class session. Um, I want to thank you all for joining us on Double Indemnity. I know that was pretty packed, which is good. Um, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, if you'd like to reach out to us for anything, any suggestions, maybe even, um, we would love to hear your thoughts. Um, you can reach, uh, you can reach the podcast at hitchcockuniversity at gmail.com. You can also find us on, uh, Facebook. There's a Hitchcock University Facebook page. Very easy to find. And then of course on Twitter where we are Hitchcock underscore U, the letter U as in university. Um, thanks again for listening um, to Hitchcock University, where you learn filmmaking from the masters. Uh, I have been Taylor Bickle, and we will talk to you again in two weeks.